Deserving listeners, today I'm going to talk about giving advice to instructors. As an instructor in a master's program for the past 20 years, I, I have a lot of things to say, and I was uh, someone sent me an email, but before we talk about that, let's introduce the podcast. This is called the Psychology in Seattle Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor, and I received an email a long time ago from patron Emily. She was asking about advice about how to be a good instructor in a master's program. She wrote me a long time ago about advice about how to be a, a good professor or how to prepare for being a, a college instructor. And I talked a little bit about it with Rebecca on the podcast, but we ran out of time. So I just wanted to uh, fully answer this question, although I'll, I won't be able to fully answer it here because the, you know, when you're, when you do anything as complicated as being as a, as a uh, you know, as, as a professor for 20 years, you just have a lot of things to say about it. So it'd be like me summing up how to be a therapist, really. So, uh, but these are the main things that I have found to be a quick things I can say that are, I, I think, useful that I keep trying to keep in my mind. And, and I've hired and trained a lot of college instructors in my program, and um, I find these things to be uh, helpful. So the first thing is, is, is to recognize that being a, instructor in a master's or doctoral program is a, is a fairly stressful job. There are a lot of factors or a lot of things that are happening. It's not like just showing up at work and doing your time. There are politics, there are students, there are, um, like when I, before I started teaching, I thought being an instructor must be this wonderful experience because you're in power and everyone has to listen to you and you don't got to take no shit from nobody because you're in control. But what I realized was when you're an instructor, you uh, you don't really feel that power <laughs> because people – because you care, right? You, you don't want to ruin people's lives. And when a student comes to you and says that they're struggling and they're upset and they believe that you have not done a good enough job teaching them, then – you know, I guess you sort of have the power to tell them to fuck off, but but most of us don't want to do that, and we end up feeling a lot of the stress, like, oh, crap, well, uh, you know, I have to figure out a way to help this student, but what if the student doesn't rise to the occasion, and I end up having to fail this student? What does that mean? Am I going to get in trouble? Is the, is the student going to hate me? Are they going to show up the next day with a gun and shoot me? You know, I mean, believe me, at 20 years of being an instructor, I've thought about all the things. And that's a very stressful spot to be in. As a therapist, which many of us are before we become instructors, you know, in programs, we don't often have that. We're not often put in that position. You know, as an instructor, you are put in a position at times about uh, to make the decision to whether or not someone survives in this field. And the students are paying thousands upon thousands of dollars for it. They're dedicating a lot of their time. Their ego's wrapped up in it. Uh, they have a lot of transferences to you. And it, it can be very stressful. So just recognize that. It doesn't mean that it's it's a terrible job, but it definitely is a heightened experience. The next thing is is to, to make sure that you really want to be an instructor because, again, 
the stress is high. So, so what I tell people when they ask me like, Oh, I'm thinking about becoming an instructor. What I tell people is, well, the first thing you have to do is figure out if you really want to do this because it's a craft that takes years to develop. I didn't really feel confident in my teaching ability until maybe 10 years into it. Now, granted for the first 10 years I taught, it was really part-time most of the time, I pretty much just taught one class a quarter. But still, you know, 10 years of doing something before I felt confident, and maybe even longer, maybe even more like 15 years before I felt like I do now, which is feeling non-nervous about teaching. For the first 10 or 15 years before teaching, I, I, I would get butterflies in my stomach, and I, it would really stress me out, and and I'd be teaching which feels like being on stage and I would feel my nerves kind of pumping, you know, especially at the beginning of the quarter. So you really have to figure out if you want to do it. And there's, and the other thing is there's not a lot of money in it. I didn't realize this, but (laughs) instructors, uh, you know, they're always taught, teachers are always talking about, Oh, we don't get paid enough. Well, college is no exception. College instructors don't get paid that much either. Um, I basically, from the beginning, have always taken a pay cut in order to teach. If if I was just a clinician, I could make so much more money. But uh, but people don't do it for the money. You got to love it. You got to consider it a calling. Uh, instructors, that's how they feel about it. It's like, well, it's a calling. This is not something that you do for money. <laughs> now, sure, surely you can be paid, and surely you can be paid fairly well eventually. But but not to the extent of your place in the in the profession you know uh, it's, you know a lot of people think of it as like oh you're a clinician and then you get sort of promoted to the position of supervisor and of instructor and therefore you should be paid a lot more than your underlings right well i train people who go on to earn more money than i do because they never go into academia and they stay in the clinical world so it's it's not um you're not in it for the money. And, and for example, when I, I looked at how much I got paid when I first started teaching, now this is 20 years ago, so inflation, but, but inflation isn't that bad. And I was paid uh, $1,000 per course uh, 10, 20 years ago when I first started, which, which worked out to be at best $10 an hour because the amount of time I spent on teaching and driving to the university and correcting papers. Oh my God, it takes so long to correct papers, uh, do grades. At, at Antioch, we don't just give out letter grades, we write narrative evaluations. And so they're basically like many papers that we write on every single student, d- d- detailing what they did and what they did well, what they needed to work on. And so when you added all that up, I was getting paid about 10 bucks an hour. And that's pretty dismal, right? So that's, and, and it was super stressful way more stressful than my regular, you know, clinical job. So you got, you had to love it. And I did, and I didn't have time for it back then either, but I made time for it because it was, it's exciting. It's interesting. It gets the blood pumping. You learn a lot. It feels good to succeed at a challenge like that. And, and so, but for many people that does not appeal to them. They're just like, yeah, I don't know. I I don't know if, I like teaching that much. I don't know if I can take the pay cut, all that kind of stuff. So 
So that's another thing, and and that's fine. If you if it's not your calling, then you know you just have to admit that to yourself, and that's fine. The next th- the next piece of advice I have is that uh, if if you do get hired, or when you get hired, or when you're working as an instructor, often what you are is an adjunct instructor, meaning that you're kind of a gun for hire. You're you're contracted uh, to teach maybe just one class, and that's it. And you are kind of an outsider. And there are a lot of benefits to being an outsider because you don't have to deal with all the meetings and all the politics. But the downside to being an outsider is that you feel very isolated. And whenever I work with adjuncts, they will always say that. And that's how I – because I was an adjunct for, I don't know, 15 years or something, 12 years. And I I felt completely – outside the loop. And even though I had people's phone numbers and I had people's email addresses, somehow it just never felt like I was a part of the team. And there's something really great about being part of the team. It You, you can get advice from people pretty quickly. You, you can get um, you can get advice about the politics. You get a better sense of the landscape. You understand the field a little better. You can uh, help the students. You, you learn about how to teach better. But the most important thing to me when I became much more integrated into the program about 10 years ago and started really having colleagues who were instructors was that I got support on working with difficult students. Every quarter you have you have at least one student who is a concern of yours, whether they are outwardly hostile towards you or they're disruptive in class somehow, or they present something that makes you rather concerned about their uh, development as a clinician, or they do something unethical, or or they don't turn things in on time, or you know, the, the list just goes on and on. So every every quarter you're going to have a student like that. Sometimes you'll have three or four students who are like that, and. When you are alone dealing with those stresses, it is so much more difficult emotionally and practically to deal with than when you have the support of your colleagues. When I got the support of my colleagues, I would go to them and I'd say, so I have this student and he is turning things in on, he's turning things in late and the, the things he turns in late are not well done. There's a lot of typos. He doesn't seem to understand the material. He doesn't even seem to be using the course material. Uh, what should I do? I, I, f- I feel like I want to f- flunk this person, but but I don't know. And, you know, my colleagues would almost always say, well, w- you know, it sounds like you're making a good case that this student doesn't deserve credit in your course. And I'd be like, yeah, I guess so. And the, my colleagues would be like, well, then flunk him <laughs> by all means, you know, uh, and you have our full support. In, in fact, I encourage you to do so because we need to send a message to some of these students who are not performing well that they need to put more time in or maybe this profession is not for them and I'd be like oh thank you so much it was always that and whenever someone came to me I always tried to reciprocate in that way and just be like if if you as an instructor have determined that this student is not rising above the threshold of a passing grade then not only do I fully support your decision to fail this student, but I but I sort of recommend that you do it because we all have to do our part to weed these very few students out. So it's 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 so great to have that support. 
And it can be so stressful when you're on your own. Now, all this depends on having colleagues that are uh, supportive, having a program director who knows how to manage instructors. So, you know, you just have to figure that out from the organization you're involved with. The next piece of advice that I have to novice instructors is to say, I don't know a lot, or let me check on that. There's this compulsion as an instructor that when when a student asks you a question, and they they will ask, particularly at Antioch, you know, it's it's an adult learning environment. And so, you know, these aren't 20-year-old kids who are just sitting there acting like they're listening while they're on Facebook or Insta or something. These are super involved students who are paying a lot of money of their own personal money and consider being a therapist or calling for them. And they're, they take it extremely seriously. And so they're going to ask a lot of questions and they're going to want to know stuff. And they're going to, and many of your students, if not all of them, will know more about some subjects than you do. And so when they ask questions or they say things that you don't know much about, there's there's a compulsion for instructors, and I've felt this myself, to just say some to just make something up. You know, there's this compulsion of just like, well, I'm the teacher, so therefore I have to have an answer. I'm the teacher, and if I say I don't know, I'm going to look like a fool. But the fact is, is who, what instructor knows everything on the planet? It's just you know, it doesn't it's not possible, and, and it's a ridiculous notion. So, and and I find that very few teachers will do this. Very few teachers will say something like. You know, that's a great question, and I don't know if I know the answer to that. I'll get back to you on that one. Is that okay? Is it okay if I write that question down and maybe get back to you next week after I talk to some experts on that? Or or to, or even just to say, you know what, that's a great question, and that's not really my area of expertise. And although that question makes total sense, I don't think I'll ever know the answer to that question. So maybe you should ask someone else about that. So just get good at responding in that way. It's almost a better default to have than to assume you know the answer to something. So only answer questions that you feel like you know the answer to. The The reason being is obvious, but, but maybe some reasons that aren't so obvious is that as a student, when, when I'm a student in a class and I can tell that an instructor is just making stuff up so that they can seem smart to the students, I completely lose respect for them. I I lose respect for everything they're saying because I realize in that moment that they are willing essentially to deceive me and lie to me that they know an answer that they don't really know the answer to. And therefore, everything they tell me is called into question. I have to wonder about, are they just making all this shit up (laughs) or only or are they only making some of the stuff up because I can tell they made that answer up. So it you you gain a lot of trust and credibility when you say you know what the things I've been talking about up until this point I know pretty well and I've studied a lot and so I feel very confident in the information I've given you. The the question you just asked me I I have a compulsion to answer that question but honestly I think I'd be making that up and I'd be doing you a disservice by answering that question without doing proper research. 
Plus, it models how to, in, in the clinical world, in the clinical world, it models how to do that when your clients ask you questions because clients will ask us questions too. And and as a therapist, you have to be willing to say, you know what, I don't know, it's a good question. Let me let me get back to you on that. The next piece of advice is perhaps perhaps the most important for novice instructors, which is to build relationships with your students. Don't just teach a class. Novice instructors, including myself for a long time, often concentrate on the quote-unquote teaching of the course, the professional side of the job, rather than building relationships with the students. The, The way that a student feels while they are in your class is the most important factor in their ability to learn. When it, you could be the best teacher in the world, you, you could uh, have the best PowerPoints and you could have the best activities, you could be super smart, but if your student doesn't trust you or if your student is scared of you or if your student is kind of walking on eggshells and insecure or if your student feels unsafe in that group environment, they won't learn anything. Whereas conversely, if your student loves you and feels safe and secure and happy and relaxed and free to move and you are only half as good of an instructor, then they will learn so much because people thrive when they feel safe. And the default feeling that students feel is unsafe. Students walk into a class and by default, all of all the students will feel unsafe. Now, this is a perspective, and people can argue with me, but, but I have a lot of evidence for this, not only watching students, but also being a student. And, uh, and, and the, the, the default sort of state is that students enter a class the first day feeling terrified. Whether they, whether they admit it or not, to themselves or not, they are terrified. There's all sorts of signs. And, and it's... And I consider it your job and my, my job as an instructor to to focus on number one first is to make everyone feel safe. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be nice. Like, for example, one of the things that I do uh, in the, at the beginning of every quarter is I lay out every way students can fail my course, which I'll get into more in a second. But I explain to the students on the first day, like one of the first things I talk about is how they can fail my class and how every quarter almost, there's almost at least one student that fails every class that I teach. And that's anxiety provoking because there are instructors in my program that would never say that. And And there are instructors in my program who might have actually never failed a student before because they're really nice people, you know? And so, but I tell them, look, I'm not like that. I I have no problem failing students who do not perform or who do not uh, follow uh, the instructions in the syllabus. I have no problem with that. I I sleep very well at night, um, you know, doing that. In fact, I sleep better at night knowing that I am holding a standard that everyone really wants me to uphold. And but what I don't do is just end it there. I actually explain every way they can feel the course, and I tell them the process. I tell them that uh, you will be told right away what you are doing that is going to get you flunked, and I will give you a chance to correct it. 
I will give you very clear behavioral markers on how you can change so that you can get credit in my class. I'm not going to, you're not going to at the end of the quarter, get a pink slip. I'm going to tell you like week three, here's what I see in you that is going to get you failed. I was teaching a class last quarter and sure enough, week four or something, I detected in one student a, an inability to write well. And so I went to him and I said, and, and in my head, I thought, I don't think this is going to work. I can, I've been around the block enough times that I don't think in the next few weeks, we're going to be able to get this guy up to speed in terms of his ability to write in, you know, at, at a graduate level. And this is a very frequent concern to instructors. And I told him, I said, I, I predict that you are going to fail this class. And, but I will, but I'm not giving up on you. But I just want you to prepare for the, for the distinct possibility that you are going to fail this class. But here's what you can do to try not to fail this class is you have to, you have to, you know, write a paper to this standard. These are the, these are, this is what I'm seeing in your writing that is not going to work for me or in any class at, at the university. Cause this was first quarter people, you know, and he had never written at, in our program before. And so, you know, I laid it all out and, and he was differentiated enough and mature enough and open enough to come to me and say, well, help me out. You know, like, what do you mean about this? And, and, and so as I commended him for that, cause a lot of students don't, a lot of students, like they just, they just clam up and they're like, Oh no, I'm, I'm intimidated. Even though I'm like telling them everything that I can to invite them to talk with me. And a lot of students, they'll just like, I don't know, they just get scared and um, they're not mature enough or they get too transferency and they think I'm their dad and, um, and they can't see the rationality of the, of the job that I'm actually doing as an instructor. Um, I mean, just along those lines, just to tell you the stress that you have to deal with as an instructor, the default reaction that I get from, from students when I tell them that they have a problem is to be defensive about it. You know, it's like, I can predict it, you know, I'll, I'll see something in a student and I'll go to them and I'll be like, look, uh, compared to the, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to compare them outwardly to their face, but, um, but of course I do compare them. Cause when I, you know, just for example, when I read their papers, so I'll read 16 papers and there's always like, I don't know, five or six that are, that are just stellar. They're just like better papers than I could ever write. And there's, there's nothing that I needed to do to actually teach them. They're just really, really smart. Well, they communicate well, they're mature, they know how to do this stuff. And then there's like a few people in the middle who have some minor issues, you know, maybe some typos or APA formatting issues, or they slightly misunderstood the assignment. And then there's always a, a bottom, I don't know, three or four students who are, you know, compared to the other students, just uh, uh, not as good of a writer and not as smart at being able to integrate the material and utilize it in a way that demonstrates that they understand the material. And when I go to them, I will say something like, so your clarity in this paragraph is not 
good. <laughs> uh, in order for me to uh, give you a passing grade on this paper and therefore a passing grade in this in this course is um, you need to demonstrate to me that you can write with clarity and that you can demonstrate that you understand the course material. And from your paper, I don't I don't get that sense. And in my head, I'm very confident in my statement to them. One, because I've been doing it for 20 years. Two, because I just read the the students who were sitting right next to you in the same exact class and their clarity and their ability to demonstrate that they understood things is without question that I read their paper and I'm like, wow, that person absorbed the material. They were listening in class and, and with instruction, they, they were able to write a paper that I can stamp, you know, as being definitely a competent paper without any hesitation. I could be like, great paper. Good job. You were listening. You were reading the material. You know how to communicate. You know how to think. You know how to integrate things. And, and yet, and you were sitting right next to that student who who knocked it out of the park, and you didn't you did not demonstrate that you have learned anything in this class. But what I get from them is, well, you know, um, just things like that they'll say they'll just be like, well, I you know I talked to some other people and they say my paper's fine, or I don't get it. Like I, I did everything you said I was supposed to do, and I'm like. Okay, you know, it's one thing to feel bad, which is totally normal. I get that. There's nothing wrong with having your self-esteem shredded by that by an instructor telling you that. And by the way, when I tell them this information, I I am much nicer than the way I'm describing it right now. I'm only exhibiting my frustration and I don't know, the dozens of students that I've ran into about this. But I get this reaction like, "What? I follow the directions or what I, you know, what do you mean I have APA formatting issues? Like the writing center said my paper was fine. And I'm always like, there's no way the writing center said your paper was fine. <laughs> there's just, or if they did, boy, do they not know what they're talking about? Either way, I'm the instructor of this course. And even if I'm wrong, you have to, you, you, I'm the one giving you your grade. Plus, I know I'm not wrong because I've been doing this for 20 years and the student sitting right next to you. Uh, met the standards and you did not. So it, it's, it's, this is one of those stresses that patron Emily, you have to deal with as a instructor, you get this pushback from, from students a lot of the time. Cause again, it's, there's just, def- there's, there's a, for many students, there's a default mode of narcissism of, well, I think my paper is good. Therefore you need to know that my paper is good. And what I'm always thinking is, as soon as we get past this def- stupid defensiveness and this immaturity, the faster we can actually get you to learn something, and the, the and which will facilitate you actually passing the class. How about that? How about you put aside your defensiveness and actually listen to the person who was getting paid to teach you, and allow me to teach you, and then you can be you can learn something new. That is going to help you not only in my class, but all the other classes you're going to take after this. And you will knock it out of the park just like every other student in your next class or by the end of your in the quarter in my class, which is exactly what this student did that I'm talking about from last quarter. He came to me and he said, OK, I, I felt offensive at first, but I think I know what you're saying. And it's been a while since I've written papers and um, I just need your help. So can you explain this to me? And I was like. 
thank you, God. <laughs> and thank you, student. And so we sat down and, and I just went line by line. I want to teach students stuff like that. I want to go, I want to explain what a topic sentence is. And I want to explain how to organize your thoughts in an academic uh, format that will be pleasing to an instructor. I want to do that. And and I consider it to be a learnable skill. Writing, I find a lot of people think is some sort of a talent. And surely there are people who are talented writers, but 99% of writing, particularly in graduate school, it's a skill. It's it's like being able to golf well, right? You don't expect having never golfed to walk out onto a, you know, a you know, a golf course and, and you'd be expected to, to, to hit a hole in one, right? You're like, well, I don't know how to golf and I'm sure I'm going to suck for a long time. Well, writing is exactly the same way. You have to put in your time. You got to do the reps. You have to write, I don't know, probably a few hundred papers in a particular format of writing before you even kind of understand the form of that communication. So, and that's what it's been like for me. Um, and I used to think like, oh, I'm a terrible writer. But what, what I should have been saying was, I haven't written enough. I, I'm an unpracticed writer is what I should have said to myself. So anyway, all this is to say that it's incredibly important to have a good relationship with your students. Because when you enter into those difficult spaces, you if you have a good relationship with a student, meaning that you know them, they know you, they like you, you like them, you trust them, they trust you, that you can have an actual conversation about these fairly tense topics. Not only are you stressed out because you want to be a good instructor, but the students are terrified and all sorts of weird things come up. And, you know, all of their, every instructor who ever hurt them, every instructor who ever made them feel humiliated or stupid or um, afraid, they will transfer that onto you. Every authority figure, for that matter, every police officer, every parent, every boss they've ever had that they have experienced bad things with, all of those feelings will emerge and they will become, students will become distorted about you. And and you for them, honestly, because you're a part of the system as well. And you will, every as an instructor, every relational problem that you've ever had will emerge and affect the way that you feel and react to your students. And so the better the relationship, the, the, the better you will be able to see through those distortions from, from both ends and better able to get the job done which is to teach the students, to bring them forward from wherever they're at, to help them to understand what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are and what they need to work on and to give them a path to um, working on those weaknesses. And when you have a good relationship with those students, things go much better. When you don't have a good relationship with your students, oh my God, Things can go very badly. As a program director and a colleague of many instructors, you know, as I've said before, Antioch University, our master's program is, the, I believe, the largest in the region. We, uh, we're hiring all the time. And in our master's program, I'm guessing 
in a year from now, our master's program will have close to 40. And then when you include the, when you include the, the doctoral programs, I'm guessing we would have 50 full-time faculty and probably 200 adjuncts. So I have a lot of experience listening to other instructors' stories about what they're stressed out about, and including my own. And almost all the time, what instructors are most stressed out about are situations that I believe could have been solved if they had a better relationship with those students. What I have seen is that when students feel like they are unsafe or they can't trust their instructor or the instructor is sort of against them or doesn't care about them, it doesn't matter how good the instructor is, the, the students will, will revolt. They'll either hate the class or, and or they'll give up and just you know go to Snapchat during class or they'll just be in survival mode and just be like, I just got to get through this. Or they will attack you. And the way that they attack you is by talking with other students and trying to trump up a accusation that will stick with the administration. And then they'll go to the administration and they will, they will attack you. Now, this has never happened to me, uh, thank God. I think because I focus on the relationship so heavily. I learned this a long time ago. But I see instructors where this happens regularly where a group of students will join, will build a coalition and complain directly to the administration about how bad of an instructor you are. And often what ends up happening is the students, because they don't really know how to critique teaching, they will often come up with complaints that don't really make a lot of sense to administration. You know, they'll say like, oh, the person uses PowerPoint too much or something like that. And it's like, eh, you know, that's probably not what is bothering you about this instructor. What's probably bothering you about the instructor is you don't feel safe and you don't feel like this, the instructor is, is really concerned with your well-being. And students don't feel like they have the right to complain about that or even the self-awareness to know that that's even what they're feeling. And so they look for some excuse as to why they're feeling shitty. And and they'll come up with things like this instructor um, dresses funny (laughs) or the instructor used offensive language or something. And, you know, for me, you've listened to this podcast. I use offensive language sometimes and if a student didn't feel safe in my class, they would latch onto that as something that they could complain about me, what they feel like they can complain about me legitimately, rather than saying, which I believe to be the much more legitimate complaint, which is this instructor makes me feel unsafe. This instructor makes me feel like I'm in danger of, uh, of I don't know what. And one of the primary things that you'll hear is this, this instructor is too disorganized. You'll hear that a lot, you know. The instructor is disorganized. And I have to say, I am fairly disorganized. I'll get into more of that later. But as an instructor, I, I, can, I can at times get disorganized because teaching is um, an evolving uh, task that is happening in the moment. It's sort of like th- preparing for a therapy session, uh, young Novice therapists often try to prepare for a session. They say, okay, in this session, I'm going to get this done. And 99% of the time that never happens because the, the situation, 
has its own factors that you don't, you can't predict and stuff's going to happen. Well, teaching is kind of the same way. And so there are times that I'm, that I'm really disorganized and people will complain about that sometimes, but they'll never revolt. And the reason why I think is because I spend a good amount of time really making sure that the students feel safe. And I do that by being very explicit, you know, by, by telling them that you're safe here and you, I'm, you know, here are the things that you can fail my class for, which are, I believe, a kind of limited set. But here, but here are the things you'll never fail my class for. You will, I will never fail you for expressing your opinion or criticizing me or, um, you know, not talking. That's the other thing I tell students is like, you don't have to talk in my class. If you don't want to participate, you don't have to. <laughs> because I was a shy person when I was in graduate school, and I hated it when instructors said, you have to participate at least once every time we talk. And I found that to be just incredibly stupid. It's like, okay, so now I'm raising my hand because I feel like I need to get a good grade in this class. And so I'm just going to say something. And I just find that to be really like treating us like children. I treat people like adults. And I say, look, if you have something to say, say it. And and try to participate. But, you know, if you don't, if you find that everyone else is saying what is on your mind and you don't feel like participating that day, then go ahead. Don't, I'm not keeping track. And, you know, as long as you're learning, that's the most important thing. I'm not, I'm not evaluating you on your extrovertedness or your comfort, comfort level with speaking in class. So, um, so I'll tell people that like, you're safe in that you can be a shy person. You can be a talkative person. It's fine. Um, you can not know things. You can be stressed out. You can, um, question my teaching ability or whatever. You know, there's a lot of things you can do to me that will never get you failed. And cause I, I, I don't, it doesn't matter to me it, or it's fine. It's just part of the process. And so, um, uh, you know, and I, I spent a lot of time explain the other thing is explaining the, the requirements of the course. A lot of instructors, they just breeze over that and just assume that, well, you know, the students will figure it out. No, they won't. Students, particularly new graduate students, when you say write a 10-page paper about this topic, they might have no idea how to even start that assignment. And so, you know, you have to walk them through it. Now, a lot of instructors will be like, well, they should know, you know, and, and you know, screw them for signing up for graduate school when they don't know how to write a paper. And it's just like, well... Okay, but a little bit of help, a little bit of anxiety easing, a little bit of instruction, and you know, maybe you give them a sample paper. I in all my classes, I always give them a sample paper, and I say, "This is a good paper. If you write a paper like this, you will likely pass this class." So, because I, as a student, when I took classes, there were times when I would I would have a, I would have no idea what sort of paper the instructor was looking for. And I find that a lot of instructors are just like, well, that's good. Anxiety is good. You know, I want you to feel that ambiguity. And I do not agree with that because when I'm scared and confused and in a fight or flight response, I'm not learning. I'm just surviving. And so I don't, I, I want students to feel safe. And, but I also want them to know that if you do not do your work and you do not respond to feedback, well, that's another thing I tell students is that I have no problem with someone making a mistake. I have no problem with someone writing a shitty paper. What I do have a problem with is when I read a shitty paper and I detail every little thing that the 
because I will. I'll, I'll mark every period that's off. I'll mark every citation that's wrong. I'll, I'll mark every object of a sentence that is incorrect. I'll, I'll point out where a topic sentence should go. I will meticulously go through the entire paper and do my job as an instructor to point out to you what is wrong with this paper and what is going well in this paper. So I have no problem with any of that. It's a little frustrating, but it's fine. What I do have a supreme problem with is when this, when you rewrite the paper and you have not addressed, you know, most of the comments that I have easily laid out for students to actually follow, that's when I have a problem because there's nothing wrong with making a mistake as a clinician, but there is something supremely wrong with not listening to your supervisor or your instructor about what you're doing wrong and try to correct it. If, if people, I tell people, if you don't understand what I told you, make sure you get it. Because if I get a, if I get another paper from you and it has the exact same mistake as something that I compassionately pointed out to you and clearly pointed out to you in the past, and you didn't ask me to clarify that, you will automatically flunk this class. I have no patience for that shit. If I'm going to do my job and teach you something and give you feedback, and you're just going to blow it off or you know, look at the feedback and go, well, I don't really get that. You know, fuck it. I'll just, I'll just move on in life. Like I know clinicians who are like that. I know supervisees who are like that. And that is a big red flag, not only just because it's super annoying as an instructor and supervisor, but to be a good clinician, you have to be responsive to feedback from your supervisors and from your clients. And if you're just one of those people who just forges ahead and doesn't listen to feedback and doesn't respond well and doesn't learn or doesn't try to learn from what people are telling you, then you're going to be a terrible therapist and you're going to hurt people. You're going to harm those around you. And I'm not going to let people like that enter the field. And so I will, I will come down hard on that. Again, if people write a shitty paper, I don't come hard. I don't come down hard on that at all because you know, what are you going to do? You, you wrote a shitty paper. I don't, it's fine. You know, obviously you don't know how to write a paper that well. That's not a big deal to me. What is a big deal to me is when I tell you, when I give you a corrective bit of feedback and you do not correct it. <laughs> um, now some things are harder to correct, you know, like write with more clarity or understand this concept better. You know, I'd never destroy someone over that because it's harder. But, but if I say to someone, this you're, the way you're citing this is incorrect. Here is the correct way. You need a comma here. You need a parentheses here. You need, and in your next paper, you just you just don't follow that instruction that I very clearly laid out. You know, that's a huge red flag that you are going to harm the public. And so, I have no problem with funking people like that. So, so again, it, you have to be very clear to your students about what is going to get them in trouble and what will not, and. And the gestalt that I hope students come away with, which I think most of them do, is I'm a hard ass on some things, but for the vast majority of activities that happen in class and and all and communication with me, like I am, you're safe, you're free. You can say what you want, you can be what you want, you can um, express what you want, you can um, ask me what you want, and I will answer quickly. Um, I will respond to emails right away. I will, um, you know, let you call me, uh, on a Thursday night. If you need help, I'll support you. I care. 
all those things. But but there's this other side that I have a responsibility for that I will have no problem, um, it, you know, in initiating, especially because I told you in very firm terms, at least a couple of times, and it's written in my syllabus very clearly. Okay. But again, relationship. This is, it's all having to do with the relationship. That's the, that's the first important thing and everything else is built on that. You can be very firm as an instructor, but if you don't have a good relationship and your students don't like you, everything will fall apart. Okay. The next bit of advice I have is to plan ahead. You want to plan ahead for every class. You want to have a very firm, you want to have a, a firm plan that you're willing to be flexible in once you are in class. But one of the most annoying things that I found about instructors that I had when I was in graduate school were instructors who just kind of showed up and were just like, okay, so what are we going to do today? <laughs> we're going to talk about the readings and I'm just going to lead a discussion. You know, they'd sit down and be like, okay, okay, let's talk about the readings. And then we would proceed to, you know, the students would do all the talking and the instructor would be like, anybody else, anybody else? And I'd be sitting here thinking, okay, I'm, you know, I'm sort of interested in what my fellow students think about the readings, but really I'm more important, more importantly, I'm interested in what the instructor, whom we are all paying uh, to do this job, I want the instructor to do something, you know, teach me something, tell me something, guide me, you know, <laughs> don't just stand there and facilitate discussions. I can, we can do that. We can do this on our own time. You know, I could get together with my classmates and, and we can talk about things and that's fine, but I don't know how much I'm going to learn from that because, these are just fellow students who are just as oblivious as I am. I want to hear from you, someone who we pay to synthesize all this and to, to guide us. And I find it to be a very lazy way of teaching. And so you, you want to show up with a plan. You want to have... A, now, maybe the plan is we're going to discuss chapters in a book. That's fine. But there has to be other things in there, you know? It has to be things that are things that you are offering, you are the teacher. You need to teach. And um, now, on the other hand, you don't want to have a plan where it's just you lecturing the whole time. And you're just, I've had other instructors at the other end of the spectrum, and they show up and they have a PowerPoint and they just read their PowerPoint for three hours. <laughs> I'm just like, ugh, you know. So you want to break it up. You want to mix up your activities. Discussion for 15 minutes, you know, PowerPoint for 15 minutes small groups for 15 minutes, you take a break, maybe some quiet time where they write, uh, back to lecture, watch a video. You, you want to mix it up uh, because no matter how good someone is at paying attention in a boring class, you do anything for three hours straight, your brain starts to get a little weird. Um, I, I, ha I try to follow a, a general rule when possible that I don't do any one activity for longer than 15 minutes because I have learned from experience that students will get very sleepy and their eyes will gloss over if you go for, you know, like 45 minutes or something, even if you're super riveting. I've, I've made that mistake. I've developed like these super, what I consider to be super well-researched presentations. And it, invariably, at about the, I don't know, 45-minute mark, 60-minute mark, even though the, the students I can tell are interested, they, they start, their energy is like slowly draining out of their feet, you know? So it's important to break things up. Now, breaking stuff up could be 
you do, you, you talk about, a, you know, maybe three hours you're talking, like I have a whole lecture about grief. And what I, and when I first developed my lecture on grief, it was, again, very well researched, and I had a lot of different anecdotes and videos and all this kind of stuff. But what I didn't realize was that I still need to do my general practice of every once in a while sort of mixing up the activity from the student side, meaning that I need to – maybe I have a worksheet, you know, just like about 20 minutes in, they just answer a couple questions on a worksheet. You know, it's so it's a, it's a shift in the brain activity. Instead of them absorbing stuff from you, they're now thinking and writing, and that's a different mode of the brain. And it keeps people awake, essentially, <laughs> to put it uh, bluntly. I when I first started teaching, I've talked about this before, but when I first started teaching, I was you know low rank, and so I didn't get to pick and choose the courses I wanted to teach. And so I always got the shitty courses to teach, which were always the the time slots that no one wanted to teach, which was 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Imagine that. You know, some of you out there go to bed at like 8, you know. Well, I would teach a class from 7 at night till 10 o'clock at night for three hours straight. So, and you know, there was always a good half of the class who, this was like way past their bedtime. And here I am teaching a class, you know, 16 students. And there would be, if, if I was being boring, I would instantly realize it by, you know, a, an ever-growing amount of students who were, who were having sleepy eyes and their head was bobbing because they're falling asleep. And so early in my career, I had, I had to learn how to be an entertainer. I had to learn how to do a song and dance and keep things moving and keep it varied and keep it interesting and, you know, to keep people awake. And I found that to be a very good... Um, trial by fire experience. And, 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 and I use those principles now, whether my students seem to be tired or not. Although the other week, um, I went on a tangent about trauma therapy and I noticed like half the students were falling asleep. And then I, I, but I, but I was so into the topic as an instructor, I didn't realize it until I switched gears and I realized, Oh, everyone was, was asleep during the last bit. I mean, not actually asleep, but falling asleep anyway. Um, so, you know, you make mistakes, but all right. Um, the next bit of, uh, advice is to incorporate feedback from your students. Let your students teach you how to be the best teacher you can be. Know that you do not know how to teach perfectly and that students have a lot of really great things to say. And so when they have feedback for you, like, I like this, I don't like that. I like this. I don't like that. Even if they're mean about it or they don't seem to be very good communicators, really listen to that because it can only make you a better teacher when you really, same goes for when you're a therapist, right? Or just a spouse or, you know, any sort of person. If you really listen to the negative feedback and think, okay, that hurt, but what can I do to make that work for me? You know, what do I have to do? Um, You know, I, I didn't realize that's how I was coming across, and what do, I, what do I need to do to change that about myself? And, you know, it's a horrible thing to get negative feedback. I know most instructors take it really hard. When I was a student, I didn't, I thought instructors uh, didn't care. I thought they, well, you know, they're instructors, they're confident, they're at the peak of their career. They, how, why would they care what I think about them? Well, when you become an instructor, you realize that 
your ego is laid wide open as an instructor uh, because, you know, you care, you're trying hard, and it's sort of like you're when you go to a restaurant and you don't like the food and you're just like, ah, this food sucks. Uh, this hamburger is overcooked. Uh, the fries are soggy. This food is terrible. Well, imagine it's now if you are cooking for your friends, okay, and you're having a dinner party and you're like, oh, okay, Friday night, my friends are coming over. I'm, I'm making them paella and I'm going to go to the store and it's my mom's recipe and I've made it a few times and this is, this is my special dish. And you get everything ready and you, you, you feed your, uh, you know, your friends and then half, half of your friends during the meal just vocalize that, oh, this is dry. Oh, uh, I would, you know, this is, this is the worst pie I've ever had. Oh, the presentation, not great. Imagine how, how shitty you would feel about yourself. You would just be like, and you'd, you'd be hurt and you'd be upset. You'd be like, really? Like, you're not going to at least try to act like you like this. I, I, I really tried, you know? Um, now you should listen to that feedback, right? You should be like, Oh, okay, well, how can I make paella better? But you're also going to, it's also going to really destroy you. And you're probably never going to want to do that again. You're gonna be like, fuck it. I'm never having a dinner party again. Well, the same goes for restaurants, by the way, you know, often there's someone who is in charge of the food and feels like they're putting their best foot forward. So you just have to be really careful about feedback. You just have to have empathy and understand. And, and I find that a lot of people who listen to this podcast on YouTube in particular, there's a lot of immature people on YouTube who just like, uh, this is dumb, get to the point, you know? And I'm just like, obviously you, you don't, you're immature or you're young and naturally immature um, and or you've never produced anything so that and put something up there for someone to criticize. Um, and so as a teacher, it's natural to, to just, ha- you know, your, your ego is just laid wide open. Now, as a student, it's not your responsibility to care for your teacher per se, but um, anyway, this is advice for teachers. So just know that it's normal to be extremely anxious. When I got my first batch of evaluations on the very first course I taught 20 years ago, I had the, the, there were handwritten forms. They still are at the university and they're handwritten forms that the students fill out at the end of the quarter about, you know, your strengths and your weaknesses as an instructor. And so I I hadn't looked at them. I kept them in my bag and I was like, well, I got to look at those things. I can't just throw them away. I I have to look, I have to read them. And I'm, I hope there's good feedback, but what about negative feedback? And those things would just be burning a hole in my bag for like days. And finally, I just went to the hurricane, which is, which was right next to the old Antioch campus. It's this, it used to be called the doghouse. It's this, they've torn it down since, but it was this 24 hour diner, you know, one of those places that people go after the bars close. And I went there in the afternoon and got a very stiff vodka drink. I'll never forget it. I just like, Give me a give me a double vodka with very little soda, and I drank that, and then I read my evaluations because I was like, okay, you know, I felt like I was on in a '60s sitcom. I, I need a drink for this, you know, and and it, you know, ever since then, it's just been 
a little bit better every time I've had to do that. But I still, you know, it's it's been 20 some years teaching and I just got some evaluations back recently and and I my body tenses up before I read those things. Even though I know I'm not going to get fired and I I know that, you know, I, and I have just not to brag, but I have like the the vast majority of people who give me feedback, it's it's positive. And whenever they do give me negative feedback, it's pretty minor. And so if anyone should feel, I don't know, uh, okay with, or even uh, looking forward to reading their evaluations, it should be me, right? But but it doesn't, man. I, I am, it's just, and whenever I talk to other instructors, they all feel the same way. Everyone has their own way of dealing with it. Some people sort of build a real thick skin and just say like, well, you know, what are you going to do? I, I did my best. But um, but I know from experience, particularly novice instructors, that it is really hard. So just get ready for that. <laughs> and get ready for that feeling, get support, vent, but don't shut yourself off and incorporate feedback. Um, and that's what I always tell my students. I'm like, you know, um, I am totally open to negative feedback because the reason why everything that I do to, or many of the things I do today and as a teacher is because I was correcting for negative feedback that I received in the past. And so if there's anything that I did this quarter that you didn't like, let me know because, you know, I'll, I'll, maybe there's something I can do for the next batch of students, you know? So there's that. Um, another bit of advice is establish how students can fail. I've already been over that cause I sort of jumped the gun on that one. But again, so just to conclude the, the, again, the most important thing is you really need to connect with your students. You really need to, now, I guess I'm talking to instructors who teach very small classes. If you're teaching a thousand students, I guess it'd be kind of hard to connect. But I think you can. I think you can still connect um, to large groups. Anyway, the point is, is that students, they want to like you and they really need to trust you and they deserve to trust you. They need to know that you're trying to help them. They deserve to know that you're trying to help them because they'll assume that you don't really care because they'll you look as an instructor so accomplished in their eyes and they'll they'll feel like well they don't care about me and you know they got better things to do than worry about me but but you really do worry about them and you really do care and you really do care about your job uh if you're an instructor again because you're not getting paid that much you're doing it mostly as a calling and so you know communicate that tell them you really do care and tell them that you think about them and you know i try to tell my students that they are major priorities in my life. I have a lot of different things that I do as, as with my work, but my students are my number one priority. And I do. There are times when I'm, you know, I'll be driving in my car and daydreaming and I'll, I'll think about my students and be like, okay, where are they? What are they doing? Uh, what do I need to do to help them? How, how are they feeling? And, and that's, you know, that's why I do it. That's, that's the calling part of it. It, I'm not doing again. I'm not doing it for the money because I could be making money in other places. I'm doing it somewhat for the money, but I could have been paid more doing other things. Um, I'm not doing it for the glamour because there's you know where's the glamour uh, or the glory or the fame or something. You know, there's there's none of that. Believe me, I'm doing it because I care about the students' development and I want I'm, I want to be the teacher. I want to be a version of the best teachers I ever had to them, and I want to. I want to protect them from the worst teachers that I had when I was in graduate school. So I want them to know that I do think about them and uh, that they're important to me and that they can depend on me and that I'm there for them. And 
to, um, and because students deserve that. And uh, mainly because in my program, the students are there because they're trying to make a world a better place. And one, why would I want to stand in the way of that? I mean, why would I want to stand in the way of someone helping another human being? One. Number two, um, if I can actually help them to be a better helper to those people, man, I can die happy. You know, I can go, I can die tomorrow and say, man, I, you know, that was meaningful to me. And I, I did not waste my time on this planet. I tried to help people to help others. That's, yeah, I consider that to be just a massive noble cause, not, you know, to, you know, pump sunshine up my own butt, but I, that's how I feel about it. And that's how I, that's, and that's how I feel about my students. I consider what they're doing is noble. And if I can help them to do that noble cause, then, then I feel like it was worth the time. Um, whereas, you know, other things that I do with my job, I, I don't necessarily feel that way about it. I, I might be interested in the task, but I'm not, it, it doesn't resonate with me the way that that does. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Let me know what you think. If you want to email me, email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or go to our website and fill out the contact us page. If you plan on coming to the live show on August 11, 2018 at the North Seattle or North City, sorry, North City Bistro here in Shoreline, which is just above Seattle, then send me a, a bio about yourself because I'm going to, during the show, I'm going to, you know, spend, I don't know, 30 seconds highlighting different people in the audience who have sent me information about themselves, you know, uh, a picture, if you uh, could, would be great. And uh, maybe a something interesting about yourself. And, um, you know, I think it'd be a good way to, I don't know, just make it a little cozy experience for us and you guys. So again, just send it to contact at psychology com. A few of you have already sent stuff, which is great. Um, and so I just want to give everyone the opportunity to do that. If they're, if you're particularly if you're a patron, and but only if you're coming to the show, because um, and the show, just so you know, is not going to be recorded for the podcast. So if you want to experience the magic, you got to be there. We're going to have all sorts of activities and trivia and swag. We're going to play D and D. We're, we're going to talk about our personal lives. We're going to do Q and A and tough for bluff and sing some songs. And Lita is going to be there, one of the original uh, Psychology in Seattle hosts. Okay. At the end, I will tell you, as I do at every episode, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.